business success usually comes to those who are too busy to be looking for it. Join RVK for the award-winning RV on Business Show every Tuesday at 12 midday. It's not about thinking out of the box. There is no box. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's nine minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're going to be continuing what we started two weeks ago, which was basically answering all the questions that have come in over the last couple of months. Um, we dealt very extensively with medical aid and gap cover. There's still one or two questions that have come in about that, which I'll deal with before we start. And then today, we're really going to delve into life cover and all the associated matters that go with that. Um, and it just seems to be a lot of um, confusion about the real basics. So I'm quite excited just to sort that out and really discuss that. And then I would like to wrap up with retirement savings and how that works, because I've also had one or two questions that seem um, obvious, and yet obviously um, they're causing confusion out there. So we'll just go through and get that get that done. So just um, two questions that came in after last week's or last show about medical aid. Um, Justine wants to know, can I have my medical aid at one insurer and my gap cover at another insurer? Sure. The answer to that is you definitely can. You, you can have it up until uh, about two years ago, three years ago. The all gap cover in, um, was done by companies that didn't do mainstream life insurance, also in medical aid. So yes, you can definitely have that. And the last one is, can I have two gap covers? In other words, keep the one that I have already got because I had happy service with it and take out another one from my um, medical aid that I'm currently with. The answer to that, the long and the short is no, because you can't double insure yourself. So you need to make sure that you can have two products in that scenario if they are doing different things. But if they're doing the same things, I would choose the most efficient and that which is most probably going to provide you the best service going forward on paper. And I would go with that um, if you feel that you want to stick with the company that you've been at and you've had good service from them. Absolutely no reason to do that. Right. Let's get into life cover. Um, there have been so many questions that have come through. Um, and I feel that if we just maybe to spend a few minutes going through the basics, a lot of the questions will get answered. So first of all, just to go back, what is the purpose of life insurance? The purpose of any insurance is to put you in a position that you would have been at had the event not happened. So the purpose of life insurance is to put the people that are left behind that are responsible for the responsibility financially of the life insured. So let's use a, 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 an example and you should, let's use a good Jewish name. Mr. Cohen, Mr. Cohen provides his family with 50,000 rand a month and he wants to make sure that if he passes away, his family will continue to get 50,000 rand a month, taking into inflation going forward. That's what life insurance is. The question is, how do you calculate it? So you can calculate it in different ways. The one way to do is to do it is to calculate it as of today. 
So in other words, the family's needs are 50,000 rand net after tax. We take inflation into consideration and we look at it going forward and say, right, if inflation is 5%, let's say, then 5% of 50,000 is 2,500. So therefore, next year, instead of 50,000 per month, we're going to need 52,500 per month going forward in year two. And then in year three and four, we'll add 5% onto that. And so it will go. And then we work it backwards to work out how much capital we need. So we need a lump sum of money that the people who are left behind, in this case, let's say it's Mrs. Cohn and her four children. Mrs. Cohn will then take the money. She would put it in the bank. And we'll talk whether it should be invested or in a bank. Let's just say in the bank for now because there's no risk then to the money. And we work out what the current interest rates are and what we expect them to be, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, the money should generate interest. And if we're drawing an amount going forward, that's how the the, the theory is worked out. So let's say that the money is invested at 5%. And the capital that's needed, the 50,000 rand per month is needed, is also increasing at 5% because that's inflation. What we're going to find is because the money is growing by the same amount that's being withdrawn every year, we should tread water. But practically, practically what's going to happen is that at some point we're going to start digging into capital. And the moment we chip into capital, it slowly starts to corrode and eventually our money will run out. It can happen that, you know, one year you need a lump sum of 200,000 rand to do repairs on a house. You'll need 150,000 rand to buy a secondhand car for a child. You'll need 300,000 rand for a wedding, etc., etc. And all of a sudden, all the plans that you made to work out exactly how much capital you would need going forward all start to come undone because we're pulling out lump sums from the investment. And therefore, the the return on the lump sum would generate less cash than is needed by the family. And so the capital starts to corrode. One can try to work it out very carefully where you take the wife into consideration. She's currently age 40, life expectancy is 85, so another 45 years. She would need X. The children, you look at each child, where they are now in school and what they would need, how much they would need for varsity, how much they would like to, um, they would need Masrobi for deposit on a house, et cetera, et cetera. That becomes a very laborious and a very onerous calculation to do because there's just so many variables. Often what is done is the more of a macro approach is taken. What does the family need now? And let's grow it maybe by seven and a half or maybe even 10% per year. And just to make sure that the capital that we've got invested is sufficient at the interest rate that we're getting. That in a nutshell is life insurance. Can you have life insurance and more than one insurer? You absolutely can. So you could have taken a policy at Southern Life or at Sage Life um, 15, 20 years ago and still have those policies they're now housed by their new companies, Liberty and Momentum, but the policy is still valid and it will still pay out. The beauty about keeping those old policies 
is that there'll be no questions asked when one passes away. They've been around for a long time. There's nothing nefarious to worry about. And the, 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 the chances of getting the payout smooth and easy is definitely worthwhile looking at. You also look at, you also look at a consideration that there's a very good chance that the policies are quite cost effective. Um, if they're just pure life policies because they've been around that long, but sometimes it can be a scenario where they're not cost effective because there are other little bits and pieces on the policy that are no longer relevant. So it's all about taking into consideration what you need now, what you can afford now. But yes, you can definitely have um, multiple life policies. So you can have a pension and a provident fund at work. Um, and on the pension fund, you've got life cover. You can have um, life insurers with two or three different insurers, et cetera, et cetera. But what you need to do is to disclose to every insurer when you take out life insurance how much you've got now. And then, for example, this chap with 50,000 rand um, a year, a month, which is 600,000 rand a year, but up to about 12 million rand, he shouldn't have much of a problem getting it. Over 6 million rand, there's a very good chance they'll ask for, you know, a financial needs analysis done by the financial advisor, or they might even ask for bank statements just to ascertain as to why this person's trying to get this amount of cover which could seem you know, surprisingly large for his current needs. And often it can be justified, my family's growing, my children might need a lot of money at the later stage, and if I'm, uh, I'm around, I would borrow that money and then pay it off. There's, there's different ways of justifying it. But, um, you know, often if the, the work's done correctly and the things are explained correctly, you really, really shouldn't have a problem with getting the right amount of cover. We need to take a quick break. And when we come back, what I want to do is discuss a difference between whole life insurance and term insurance, something that I've had a few questions about. Craig, take us to the shops. This is RV on Business. Just before the break, I said we will discuss the difference between term insurance and whole life insurance when it comes to life insurance. The majority of life cover that one buys in South Africa today is whole of life, which means that no matter at what age you buy it, whether you're young, middle-aged, or even a little bit older, that policy will not expire so long as there are two conditions in place. Number one, you pay your premiums. And number two, you haven't lied on the application point um, because that just causes a whole lot of trouble down the line. But you know, let's discount that and everybody is going to be as transparent as they can when they fill in an application form. So long as you're paying your premiums, the cover will be there. And should someone live to a ripe old age um, and then pass away, the policy will pay out. It does not expire. You need to be careful because certain older policies, I'm talking policies maybe more than 15 years old, did tend to have an expiry age on them. There could have also been endowment policies with life cover, and then the policy would mature and pay out, and the life cover would fall away. So just be careful. Ask someone to look at it for you. Call the insurance company, get a printout, and it should tell you quite clearly what you've got. Term insurance is a different animal altogether. That is there to cover the risk for a certain period of time. So let's take an example. Mr. Cohn and uh, Mr. McCarthy are going into business together. And together they both need to lay out 5 million rand into this particular project. 
So what the bank wants to make sure is that they've got cover should something happen. So they will ask um, the each investor, Mr. Cohn and Mr. McCarthy, to take out five million rand life cover. That's the that's the case where the bank has lent Cohn and McCarthy the money to put into this venture. So the bank will ask them to take out the cover um, for this particular venture, and because they had to pay it back in five years, they they would be happy with life insurance that's only valid for five years. Why would you do that? Simply because it's more cost effective. It's a lot cheaper to take out life insurance for a shorter period of time than it is that that it doesn't have an expiry date. So that's the one scenario. The other scenario is a person takes out life cover, he has limited means, and he reckons that in 10 years' time, his youngest child, who is now 13, will be 23, and at that stage should be financially independent. And therefore, if you can save a little bit of money now, do the responsible thing and have the life insurance in place, he doesn't need to take whole of life. He can take term insurance and therefore save himself a little bit of money or most most practically make it affordable that he can keep it in place over the time that he needs it. And that's the difference really between whole of life and term insurance. In certain countries, for example, in Israel, you can't buy whole of life in life insurance. Life insurance expires at a particular age. Um, which is something that we're really not used to in South Africa because in South Africa, we just take it for granted that life cover will be there when you need it, so long as you pay your premiums. The next thing that I'd like to discuss are the add-ons that one can put onto a life policy. So you can have things like severe illness or some companies call it critical illness. You can have um, um, disability, which is a lump sum product. You, in other words, if you become totally and permanently disabled, it will pay off the amount that you're insured for, should certain criteria be reached. And third um, product that one could have something called income continuation or income protection product um, um, benefit, which very simply means that if you are unable to work because of a mental or an emotional condition, say a physical or an emotional condition, the insurance company would pay you your income that you insured for, for a after a period of the waiting period, and in most companies the waiting period can be short as seven days. If you um, in the occupation market, you're in the medical field, you're a doctor, you're a dentist, a lawyer, an accountant, especially if you're self-employed. In other words, if you don't work, you don't earn. Some people have opted to take a three-month waiting period simply because they work on a job and they'll get paid either way. The difference is that. The difference is, is the premium. The shorter the waiting period, the cheaper the t- premium tends to be. Or the other way around, the the shorter the, the shorter the waiting period, the more expensive the premium needs to, um, tends to be. The longer the waiting period, the more cost effective the premium tends to be. There were so many questions that came in about how these products work. What's the difference between disability and severe illness. Can one have both? How do they affect the life cover? Then I'm just going to go back and again, just give a overview of the product. And hopefully a lot of the questions will be answered like that. I can almost see just people putting up their hands waiting to ask if you can all just maybe wait another 12 minutes and hopefully a lot of the questions will be asked. 
Let's start with severe illness or critical illness. First of all, at most insurers in South Africa, you can either have it as an accelerated or a non-accelerated product. What does that mean? Let's take the figures. Let's use 5 million rand life cover and 2 million rand severe illness. If it is accelerated, it means that should Mr. Cohen in this scenario have a heart attack and is considered a category A heart attack, in other words, it's severe enough for a full payout of the 2 million rand life cover, I'm sorry, severe illness, and he survives a certain period of time, it's a couple of days, then the life cover will reduce by the 2 million. And in a year's time, he will only have 3 million rand life cover. And in some scenarios, he won't have any severe illness cover left because he's already used the benefit. The other scenario is what we call non-accelerated. That allows a client and person to claim on the severe illness. It does not affect the life cover. In other words, the 5 million remains in place. The 2 million severe illness or critical illness is paid out. And in some um, cases, what will happen is the benefit will reinstate. So the, the client will get the 2 million rand payout. He will then turn around to his broker and say, but why is my premium the same? I've already used this benefit. Surely my premium will come down because the benefit no longer exists. And the answer will be no. In this case, the benefit does exist. You can or you can't, depending on the policy wording, claim on the same benefit again. Should it come, should it be get worse or should it reappear in another manifestation? Depends from company to company, but the logic that it's there. So one can claim for a heart attack and two years later a claim for a stroke. That is the advantages of having it non-accelerated. Of course, what's the bottom line? It boils down to affordability. A non-accelerated benefit, although it's a benefit that is referred to sometimes as standalone, tends to be more expensive than the life than if it was accelerated. What you also have as another advantage was a standalone benefit is that one could have one million rand life cover and two million rand severe illness or critical illness cover. In other words, more than the life cover. If it's an accelerated benefit, you can't do that because it needs to accelerate against something which is the life cover. So if you've got a million rand life cover in this scenario, the maximum um, severe illness you could have that is a non-accelerated benefit is a million rand. And in that case, if you only had those two benefits and they were non-accelerated, there's a very good chance that had you had to claim, the policy itself would fall away because it's done its job, it's executed its mandate, it's paid out the severe illness, and now it's accelerated against the life cover and you have nothing. Some covered companies have what they call a minimum protected fund or a minimum, minimum amount insured, varies from company to company, that even if you have a million rand life cover and a million rand severe illness and it's accelerated, you'll never drop more than 200,000 rand life cover, let's say. So even though they pay out the million rand severe illness, you'll still be left with 200,000 rand life cover. And it can gain, it varies what the um, standard amounts are. You can increase it, you can decrease, you can take that benefit away in a lot of scenarios. But that's exactly how it works. Disability works exactly the same way, either accelerated or non-accelerated. 
and you can choose how you want it to work in those two scenarios. And again, disability is a little bit more tricky in the sense that there's a maximum amount of lump sum disability you can have, um, often linked to the amount of life cover that you have. Severe illness has a similar ratio, but you just need to sit with a financial advisor and go through that. What you'll notice that if you do a million rand life cover, a million rand non-accelerated severe illness, and a million rand non-accelerated disability, you'll get a price per item. And your price will vary dramatically. Your life cover will give you a price. Your severe illness will be far more expensive. And often the disability amount will be a lot cheaper. And the question is often asked, and I saw it a few times in the questions that came through, why is my severe illness so expensive? It's so expensive for two main reasons. Number one, all you need to do to trigger a claim on severe illness is submit paperwork and blood tests. So if a person has a heart attack, they just want the pathology tests to prove that that, that you've had the heart attack and it triggers a claim. Also, the probability of someone getting a severe illness is quite high as the person tends to get older. But even these days, things like heart attack due to lifestyle is a lot more prevalent in younger people. Whereas disability works on what we call total and permanent disability. So someone can be in a tremendous car accident, be in hospital for a long time, go to rehab, but eventually be able to walk, yes, not be able to run again, maybe um, live the rest of their life with a certain amount of discomfort. And it doesn't it trigger a, it doesn't trigger a claim because the injuries are not total. In other words, the person is not um, the person is still able to live and function on their own without assistance. And often it seems very, very cruel, and often it seems very, very unfair especially when the family is going through the trauma and they desperately need the cash. There again, or today, today there are many different variants, there are different types of disability, so please discuss that with your financial consultant to make sure that you get all that clear because I would I often advise it's rather better to take less cover at a higher level, in other words, a, more, a, a benefit that gives you a, a wider basket a wider um, catch of different claim events than having a greater number when it comes to the amount you can claim, but for lesser events. Some insurance companies allow you to get more than one disability. So one can say, well, I'll take a cheap lump sum disability out to cover the bond, which will only cover me in severe scenarios. And I'll take um, another amount to cover my family should um, something happens to me. So you are able to have a look at those. Then the last item that I want to discuss before I get on to retirement savings is income protection benefit or income replacement. These all different names for it in the market. Simply what it means is if you can't work, the insurance company is going to pay your salary for you. There are four major items that are crucial when you're looking at this. Item number one. The amount. So the amount is not how much you want to, the maximum amount. It's not about how much you feel that you're worth. 
It is what your current earnings are. If you work, will you get an IRP5? It's pretty straightforward. You just work on the IRP5 because that's what the insurance company is going to look at ultimately. If you're self-employed and there's a lot of gray area, one needs to be very, very careful how you insure that. Because if you insure it in a way where if you had to be totally and permanently disabled, you would not get paid that full amount. It becomes a problem because then you resent having paid so much premium for cover that you can't benefit from. So it's, you know, the one time you really need to be absolutely clear and understand that insurance companies will only pay on income that is declared. So one has to be careful about that. There are benefits you can add on to cover certain business overheads. And then they'll look at the company's um, expenses. So you just need to be careful on that. So the one is the amount. And the amount is typically 75% of your net income. So in simple figures, if you earn 10,000 Rand gross and your net is 8,500, and then you take 75% of that, you can insure 6,375. So the argument will be, but hold on, I want to get my full net salary. So there are ways one can top it up. It's called top-up cover, which will cover the the net salary and the full net salary. And there you go. But often it only runs for age 65. Excuse me. So that's the amount that you're covered, you're covered for. The next thing is the waiting period. How long are you going to wait before you claim on this product? So as I mentioned earlier, you can wait a, a, a short period of anything up from seven days. If you're a doctor, a lawyer, in other words, you're working in a profession where if you don't work, you don't earn. And therefore, every day that you're not working is a huge financial loss to you. A seven-day product will be great. But if you are employed by a company and, and you want to make sure that you are covered, should you become you know unable to work for an extended period of time, but you know and they've told you I'll pay you three months regardless, then you take a three-month waiting period because it's a lot cheaper, a lot more cost-effective. So that's the next thing is the waiting period. The third item, which is to me something that I see a lot and it is absolutely scary, is the increase that your claim will increase by in claim stage. So a lot of people have put a zero increase. So right now you're covered correctly, but comes a year's time if you're claiming there's no additional cover and you can maybe get away with it. But after two or three or four years, you're going to start feeling that really, really severely where you no longer have enough cover to live on and your income that you're getting from the insurance company is insufficient. The last thing to look at is the expiry date. A lot of companies, you know, allow you to take cover up to the age 55, 60, 65, 70. And today you can take cover that's whole of life. It doesn't expire. And again, one is often tempted to take it for an earlier period because it's a lot cheaper. But remember that if you take it for an earlier period and you have a medical event that allows you, that it renders you uninsurable or uninsurable or uninsurable in a certain category of medical expenses, you've got yourself a serious problem. So one needs to look at it holistically and take it into consideration. It does sound complicated, but once you sit down with someone and you do the quote step by step, you'll find that it's really pretty straightforward. 
Right. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking retirement savings. This is RV on business. Right. Retirement savings. Um, what we often get confused about is people turn around and say, I've got a pension funded work, but now there's a new thing that's come out. I need to take a provident fund also. Or I've got a pension and provident funded work. Why would I need something else? Or they offered it to me at work and I told them, no, I don't want to take it because I've got something privately. Pension, provident and retirement annuity all fit into the same legal category, all work hand in hand and all are there to assist you to retire. They are not mutually exclusive and just because you have the one doesn't mean you need to have the other. And just because you have the one doesn't mean that you can't have the other. What we need to do is actually look at, first of all, what you need to have. In other words, if your company has said to you, part of the employment contract is you need to have this and this benefit, then that's what you're going to need to have. We will then work out whether that is sufficient or not based on your current needs, projecting them forward with inflation, your current assets, how much money have you got saved? or what other investments have you have that have you got that can generate income at retirement? Taking all that into consideration, we'll then have a look at that. But all of them tend to work on not tend to, they do work on exactly the same legal premises. And what I'd like to do is maybe Craig to take a quick break now and then I'll rejoin the Zoom so that we can continue to talk. Are you happy with that? Craig says, great. So we're going to take a quick break. I will then rejoin the Zoom so we can finish the subject. I'll be with you in a moment. This is RV on business. Welcome back to 11.9 FM. It is 40 minutes to one. We really don't have a lot of time. So I want to get into the questions that people have asked about retirement savings. Let's answer them um, and see if we can get through the whole lot of them. So Susie wants to know, I've got a retirement annuity that I've had for many, many years. It was taken out for me when I was a young girl by my father in 1970. It is still running and I pay the premiums now. Is it legal and I can I keep doing this or should I stop it and take the money? Well, Susie, your dad was a very, very clever guy because he started doing it for you when you were, when, he, when you were very young. You obviously made it, um, took it out in such a way that even now the premium is still affordable because you've kept paying it. I'm sure it's worth a significant amount of money. And the beauty about it is that all that money is tax-free. The growth on that money is tax-free. So that investment can grow without you paying tax. I would strongly advise you to find a competent financial planner, sit down and have a look at this policy. The first thing to take into consideration is how old are you? Do you need it? Do you want it? Second of all, how's it done? Is it giving you the return that you need that, that, that it could? Or is it maybe a possibility that you can change some funds? The challenge of the policy that, that old, there might be a very, very limited scope for change of funds, um, depending on the company that it's at at the moment. So, that is definitely something that is valid. Um, you don't have to cash it out anymore. Um, you know, I'm sure when you took it out, it was uh, age 65 or 70 retirement age. 
that you would have to have converted it, you no longer need to do that. So sit down and have a look at um, what, what it's all about. Also look at it from an estate planning point of view. If you leave it and you pass away one day with that policy intact, what will it do to your estate and what will it do to the beneficiaries of that policy? And that brings me to the next point is please have a look at your beneficiaries. You might have had a beneficiary of a sibling when you took it out because you weren't married. You now, um, let's say you're a, you're a widow and you've got three adult children and you would desperately want them to get the money. Please make sure that you change your beneficiaries. RA is on, you know, a little bit different because there is a bit of discretion once you've passed away for the, the trustees of the trust to look at it. But please just change your beneficiaries now. Um, and make sure that it just goes to those that you wish it goes to, and then you haven't got problems from there. The next question is like this. Sigmund says, I sat down with a financial advisor for a consultant for a consultation and was told that I'm contributing more than I am allowed to to my pension, provident, and medical aid, or um, pension, provident, and medical, not medical aid, I think you mean retirement annuity, all put together. And he suggested that I reduce my contributions. What are your feelings on this? Okay, let's go back a little bit. At the moment, between pension, provident, and retirement annuity, one can contribute 27.5% of your gross income to them all. So not each one, but as a collective. To a maximum of 350,000 rand a year. But what is that for? That is for tax deductibility. In other words, if 350,000 is the maximum that you can contribute because you earn, you know, the 27.5%, let's say it's 400,000 and therefore you're only contributing 350, that full 350,000 will be tax deductible. But that doesn't stop you from contributing more. You definitely can contribute more. It just will not be deductible now. There is a um, a logic that it will be deferred. Well, that's what happens. It gets deferred until you retire. And then those tax credits, so to speak, come off when you retire, when you start drawing your income. But I would look at it quite carefully. If you're maximizing your tax deductibility and you still have more money to save, that allows you to go look at other exciting stuff, other possibilities where you could put your money. So have a look at it and and um, and see what other advantages you can get. You might not get a tax deductibility on the premiums that you pay, but it might allow you to go a little bit offshore. It might um, uh, you know allow you to do all these different things. So please have a look at that and see what you can what you can do from there. The next question is something that I see, unfortunately, quite a lot. Lucretia says, I have got 10 years to retirement. I want to be as aggressive as I can. And my financial consultant uses this excuse that it is illegal for her to put me into aggressive funds. Can you assist in helping me to be more aggressive on my investment? So the Christian answer is no, I can't assist you because you have a financial plan that seems to know what she's talking about. Maybe just didn't explain things in a way that um, is understandable to you. And that might be because you've got this emotional 
connection to your money because you realize that you've invested a little too little too late and now you're playing trying to play catch up and hoping that all the planets will line up for you and that um, by being aggressive you'll be able to make extraordinary returns and therefore you'll be able to accumulate enough capital you're in a very 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 dangerous place and as they say you're on a slippery slope Right, let's get the animosity between you and your financial advisor out the way. There's legislation, it's called rule, uh, Regulation uh, uh, 48, as to where you can put your money. And there's a maximum amount of equity exposure that you can have for your money. And therefore, um, what your advisor is saying is that even though you might come out as aggressive on your risk profiler, she cannot put you into more aggressive funds than what we call a typical type of balance fund. They have different names, they have different companies, but that's without an exposure of more than 65 to 70% equities. There's also a maximum exposure that you can have towards offshore investments. And that's something else that one needs to be careful of. So it's not that your financial advisor is incorrect or absolutely 100% correct. But what I want to really pick up, and I think I was a bit cynical about it before, hoping that I'll get the point across. You can't create voodoo economics and hope that it will work. One cannot go be super aggressive with their retirement money and say, well, I've only got 10 years left and therefore over a eroding three year period, I should be do, I should do better than inflation. Theoretically, you should, but who knows what's going to happen when you retire. And you might not have the ability to say, okay, we're in a down market now. I'll wait another two years or another two years, 11 months. You might need to retire now. And therefore, what you do is you lock in the loss. One should even look at it over the next couple of break the tenure into periods. Maybe the first five years, be as aggressive as you can and then definitely start tapering it down from there because that will allow you to limit the exposure to risk should the markets turn against you. I certainly have not finished all the questions. There's still quite a lot to go. We definitely won't be doing them next week because we've got guests lined up, but I will hopefully get to them in the next in the next question and answer session. Craig, thanks for pushing the buttons. Everybody, thanks for listening. We will speak to you next week.